and welcome back to Building Voices, the CMS Ice Disputes podcast where people in the know discuss topical issues that impact the construction and infrastructure sectors. In a special edition of the podcast, we are today joined by Simon Hale, a barrister at Full Pump Court and a specialist in construction and energy disputes. Today's podcast focuses on the recent newsworthy Shapurji decision, a case concerning an injunction application in the commercial court to restrain a 32.2 million bond call pending ICC emergency arbitration proceedings. The on-demand bond call was made in the context of a dispute concerning significant delay in the construction of a Rwandan power plant. Simon acted for the successful party to the proceedings, the ultimate owner and operator of the power plant. As we will hear in more detail today, this case is relevant to construction disputes and serves as a useful reminder of the limited circumstances where an applicant can challenge a bond call. It also considers the tests and thresholds applicable for interim injunctive relief where an application is made under Section 44 of the Arbitration Act. So, Simon, to kick us off, please can you provide a brief outline of the case, your involvement in the proceedings and the party's positions? With pleasure. Thank you, Francis. Thanks for having me. Um, I'll start with the parties. So, Shapurji was the claimant contractor that had uh, contracted to build a power plant in Rwanda, and Yum was the, uh, the the employer, and then would become the owner and operator. And I was acting for them. Uh, there were a number of contracts between the parties governing the plant. All of them were uh, a English law substantive contracts, and b had ICC arbitration clauses. Uh, again, applying English law, albeit with a Singapore seat. It was an important part of the uh, regime that there were a number of performance securities to support the contractor's obligations, and those were demand bonds. The demand bonds, consistently with the, the, the contracts, were again all English law instruments, but they provided for English court jurisdiction. Um, what happened at project level is a sort of somewhat familiar pattern of uh, uh, disagreement and, and delay. There were applications for extensions of time that were unsuccessful, and um, the employer's position is that it had uh, significant entitlement to liquidated damages for late completion. Uh, and it all sort of came to a head. Uh, and in the end, uh, Young, the employer, made a demand on one of the performance bonds for $32 million. And it was that demand that gave rise to the, the dispute we're talking about. Uh, and as we'll come on in a moment, in the end, that demand was was upheld uh, and Young was held to be entitled to, to call that bond. Thanks, Simon. Many thanks for um, setting the scene. So could you describe the party's positions in a little bit more detail for us? Sure. So it was agreed that the demand was uh, sort of formally and technically compliant, but it was disputed that uh, on the underlying contract, the underlying facts, uh, the employer had a claim for liquidated damages, uh, and, and it was on those claims that the demand was based. The commercial court case that we're discussing was really, in the end, about how the court should deal with an application to interfere with the demand bond process. Uh, and more particularly, it was about how does the court uh, deal with an application like that where the, the wider context is, is international arbitration between the contracting parties. Um, uh, in particular, one of the issues in play was that there was an emergency arbitrator process uh, that could be invoked under the ICC rules. 
And the, the gist of the contractor's argument to the commercial court judge was that all of the issues between the parties should be sort of stood over to that emergency arbitrator because he or she was the uh, the better person to hear the, the urgent and um, interim dispute. So to sort of get to that, to get at that issue a little bit more detail, the contractor's case in essence, uh, I suppose three points. They said this demand uh, was, was a fraudulent demand. It wasn't based on an honest belief in claims. Uh, secondly, they said that, that therefore the bond, uh, the demand on the bond should be restrained. And thirdly, they said the question of whether that order ought to be made uh, should go off to an emergency arbitrator. The in, in, in response, our case as the employer was that there's absolutely no evidence of fraud whatsoever. It was very strongly refuted. Um, there's no uh, reason that the demand should be restrained at all. Uh, and in any event, the question before the court should be decided by this court. It was for the, the High Court judge to determine whether there were any grounds for an injunction, uh, not to sort of put it off to a further forum for a further consideration. Great. Thanks, Simon. So having set out different parties' positions, can you tell us what the basis for the court's decision and in particular why was the court found in your client's favour? Well I think the judgment really has got two main themes and two main parts to it. The first is that it looks at the English law principles that govern demand bonds more generally and second it looked at these more arbitration inflected arguments as to whether there was something about the particular circumstances of this case that made it different on the English law principles, I think we can see this judgment as a, as a very strong restatement of the existing law. That is that demand bonds that are governed by English law are um, really very powerful securities. They will generally be enforced by the courts subject only to extremely limited exceptions. There's two main exceptions. One is where there is uh, fraud in the demand. But that requires that the uh, it's got to be shown to the court that there's really pretty irrefutable evidence of fraud. So that that's extremely rare. Or secondly, that the demand on the demand bond has been made in breach of some very clear contractual condition that um, governed the circumstances in which the demand could be made. And again, that's that's pretty unusual because the whole nature of these bonds is that they're just they're callable on demand as and when the the um, beneficiary so wishes. So the court restated all of that law and said, look, you know, this is this is very well established and it remains the position. The second aspect of the judgment was, well, what about this argument by the contractor that because this is all taking place under the auspices of an ICC arbitration agreement and in circumstances where an ICC emergency arbitrator could could look at this, should the court apply those principles differently? Should the court exercise its discretion differently? And the short answer was no. Um, two main reasons for that. Firstly, the court said, if you wanted to take this to arbitration, you could already have done so on the facts. There was no arbitration in, in, on, on foot between these parties uh, until after the demand had been made. So the court said, look, you know, if you want to use the emergency arbitrator process, you can, but you needed to have gone there first. You needed to have got that process up and running. Uh, and secondly, because there was simply no authority, there was no sort of basis in principle for saying that any of those legal principles about the fraud exception and so on that I've talked about 
that they work differently where they are where there's an arbitration context you know, that actually there was some authority that said uh, uh, quite the opposite so a consistent application of the legal principles on demand bonds and an endorsement of those principles operating in, in basically the same way um, where there is an arbitration context. Great, thanks, Simon. That's a really helpful summary of the key principles there. Um, and so what I wanted to briefly discuss with you is what um, implication the decision has on our contractor and developer clients. Um, it seems to me that agreeing to an on-demand bond should be proceeded with caution. I, I don't know what your thoughts are on that. I think that's, uh, well, you're right. It depends which side of the fence you're on. But yes, I think caution and care, because these these demand bonds are really very powerful uh, securities in the hands of the, the, the beneficiary. They allow you to call really quite significant sums of money, such as the 32 million here, uh, on demand and with no real requirement to, to prove uh, breach or, or or produce evidence in in most circumstances. So they are they're really powerful sets of rights, and correspondingly, therefore, for a contractor that might typically have to procure one of these bonds, they represent a major risk centre within the wider contractual scheme. So I absolutely agree with that. I think another uh, another two takeaways from the judgment sort of mirror the two main themes I drew up before. One is that for international clients or international projects, if you are selecting English law, you've got to be aware that English law is a particularly strict uh, environment for the enforcement of these securities. And it, there are contrasting contrasting attitudes internationally. Some In some other countries, Singapore has a rather more uh, softer-edged approach to the enforcement of these bonds, but it's in England, it's very firm. And then the other point is this arbitration context and emergency arbitrator procedures exist in a number of the different sets of international rules. ICC has that process, the um, DIFC, LCIA has the process, so does the HKIAC and others. It's a common feature. If as a party you want to get a dispute or a potential dispute over a bond into arbitration first and get a sort of per, uh, an anticipatory decision, you might need to think about doing that early course, getting it to an emergency arbitrator first, rather than waiting till, you know, the wheels are in motion and you're, you're having to go to the national courts. So um, it's, yeah, it's an interesting decision, I think, for both for clients domiciled and based doing their work here, but also for any international clients who use English law. And that's a really helpful summary of um, the key takeaways from the case, especially in respect of how it impacts on our clients. Um, and thank you very much for your time today. It's really great to speak to someone who had obviously such a key involvement in, in the decision. And, and thanks, everyone, for listening. And hopefully you'll join us next time on our Building Voices podcast. Mm -hmm.